Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, you Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, what's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. 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 Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. I was not looking for deep personal secrets, but for insights on what makes these legends in my world tick, what inspired them, what makes them do what they do and how they do it. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them, who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Welcome to Conversations with Storytellers. Most of the storytellers I have interviewed and will be interviewing are not the same kind of traditional storyteller that J.O. Callahan is. J.O. Callahan is more of a modern-day Hans Christian Andersen. His work has inspired thousands, if not millions, of people and has entertained at least double that many. I have met people close to my own age who saw Jay perform at their elementary school who still remember him, if not their algebra. Jay is a consummate professional, a genuine caring humanitarian, and has a mind like a bear trap. His stories are filled with compassion and insight and show the best of us as a species. His level and quality of work is one that many wish to attain. Recording the interview in Jay's office was wonderful. He has a nice garden and you can hear the birds singing out there. Please enjoy my conversation with Jay O'Callaghan. So, here I am with Jay O'Callaghan in his lovely little office. And uh, I'm very excited to be here. Very excited to be here, to doing this with you. So you've recorded at least 24 CDs of stories and you've written and appeared in a number of books and you've performed on some of the world's greatest stages and on radio and on TV, I discovered. You have won many awards, performed multiple times at Jonesboro and other national and international festivals and events. You are a highly respected member of our community and you are one of the most accomplished storytellers and writers that I know. Uh, in 1996, you were inducted into the Circle of Excellence by the National Storytelling Association, now the National Storytelling Network. Thanks for being a part of my series of interviews. You were born in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, right? Brookline. Brookline, sorry. Brookline, Massachusetts. On, on High Hill Street, also known as Pill yeah, Hill. Pill Hill, that's right. Right. <laughs> um, and you've obviously told many stories about Pill Hill. And your, your parents are teachers, right? Yes, my parents formed a school. I'm just working on a story. It was called the Wyndham School, uh -huh. which was a secretarial school in Back Bay and a kind of a Pygmalion school. So this is back in the 40s, 50s. So working class girls came and they had the, you know, typing and shorthand, but there were classes in the novel and the short story. 
So these young women were more at ease out in the world. That's really cool. Well, what was your... I mean, I've, I've heard some of your Pill Hill stories. Um, but what was your childhood like growing up there and in that, in that space? Cause I remember you telling me um, that they were really lucky to find this house because no, nobody else was were buying houses in that area. They're big houses. Big houses. Because yeah. the war was over and they were too expensive to heat. Right. So my parents were very, uh, they were daring and romantic. So they bought this house, 112 High Street, that had been built by, I think it was Charles Starrell for his daughter. And the grounds were small, but landscaped by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the great landscape artist of this country. And it was a huge house, 20, 32 rooms, so it was, it was a great place for hide-and-seek and climbing on top of. <laughs> and it was a dramatic neighborhood filled with interesting people, particularly the Lawrences there. They're big characters in many of the stories. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah, I can imagine running around corridors in large homes and it being just ideal for Yes, and, and there were many, many houses and yards, and it was post-World War II, so the women really had been running things, and then the husband came back. So for them, it was, it was the new world. It was yeah. beginning again. Many of the people in Peel Hill were doctors, so they were young doctors, really beginning, right. you know, having come back from Europe. Um, that's where the name Pill Hill comes from, right? Pill Hill from the many doctors. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so you've talked a lot about your mother, um, and you, you, but I, I've never heard much about your father. Oh, well, so father... So was, was, your, was your mother the bigger influence of the two? Uh, no, it really was balanced. They had an unusual marriage because they did. They formed the school together and they worked together. Um, and they were both very interested in language and uh, they were wonderful entertainers. Yeah. So this house was a marvelous way to gather people. And I, I feel in retrospect they had this ability to set people at ease so you could almost take off this this jacket of protectiveness that people need to wear and they became themselves in this very dramatic house great piano room and then a conservatory and then there was a tapestry room um, and there were uh, you know marvelous dining room and so I, as I talk to you, I just see all these people coming back <laughs> and laughing. And those are the times, of course, of highballs. So for a child, there was a sense of the, the ice clinking and the bubbles going up. And there was this dance, including the dance of everyone who was smoking cigarettes. Yeah, right. Talking about Churchill and Truman and Stalin. So in a way, these characters danced in the cigarette smoke. For a child, it was all dramatic. And they were talking about the bomb, but the men would never talk about where they were. And yet I knew many of them were in bombers. Yeah. Um, so you had this 
imaginative life, but that they wouldn't talk about where they were or what happened. Right. Just the great question, should the atomic bomb have been dropped? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. Yes, and it was a very dramatic uh, setting for a child, and music yeah. was a huge part of it. That was going to be my next question. You talked about the piano, and I, I know that you, you're very musical in your storytelling. Um, yes, I love rhythms, and uh, so I grew up with the Broadway songs and the football songs, and Uncle Eric was a formidable figure, a big man. He played the piano like a blacksmith. Oh, really? Not delicately. <laughs> <laughs> smashed down, and somehow uh, the notes would come out. <laughs> now, is, is this the same uncle who was a, a decorated chaplain? No, that was... Uh, that was my father's brother. Okay. Called him Father Joe, and he he did win the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was a very dramatic man, yeah. very forceful. So there's a story called Father Joe. I don't know if you've listened, but I, I know of it, but I haven't listened to it. No. Uh, but it's partially about my relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Then the scenes are broken. Freshman year, suddenly you're back on the ship. Mm-hmm. And the ship is hit by two bombs and begins to blow itself apart as it was filled with bombs and gasoline. Uh, so it's a story of his bravery, but also the relationship of, uh, of a college freshman who's very naive, but beginning to learn about life, partially through him. Yeah. So he was a big influence on you. He was an influence. My my parents were much greater, but he was definitely an influence. He, um, brave and brusque, and uh, and helpful. He was very interested in me. It was only through storytelling that I realized what an influence, because I reflected on the, to make the story, mm-hmm. and again making stories about my dad. There's a story called The Dance. It's very intense. Um, And you talked about mother, and she really hasn't been given her proper play in in the stories. She's never been the central character, and she should. Because you talk about your mother a lot. That's what I've noticed. When I've been in workshops, you mention your mother. Yeah. But then your stories about your father and your uncles. So. Yeah, so mother, uh, dramatic with gestures, dramatic with language, uh, uh, so many phrases. People love to be, people love to be thanked. I'll never forget that. Uh, and she would greet people at the party, what are you reading? She would say, what are you reading? Her left hand in the out. I can remember one of the big parties were the college people. One of the college people was uh, on the football team at Holy Cross, big fellow. He came into the big hall and mother, what are you reading? <laughs> I don't think it ever been greeted like that. <laughs> no, hello, just what you're reading. Exactly. That's <laughs> not who are you. What are you reading? <laughs> well, I guess that's a form of introduction. Yes. You get an is. idea of who that person is if you get an idea of what they like to read. Or if, if, that, if that's what they're choosing to read, I suppose. So, um, you went to study law at college. Yes, after college. Oh, after college. Yes, after college. So what did you, what did you study at college? At college, I majored in 
history and English. Started with English and then switched pretty late, senior year, but there was a wonderful teacher. And at Holy Cross College, you didn't major till junior year. And it was a Jesuit college, so they were very interested in philosophy mm -hmm. and theology. And I had a wonderful Jesuit teacher, sociology. And I think if I had it to do again, I might have been majored in that because of him. Okay. Uh, he was very interested in groups, and my college roommate had this wonderful sense of how how groups worked and where the power was, and uh, this was brand new to me. Yeah. Uh, and it was, in a sense, it was a new study at that time. So that's way back, you know, graduated in 1960. Uh, at any rate, uh, mother and father were, you know, more, certainly more important to me than college because it, you, it wasn't academic language, it was alive. Yeah. Language is alive, and you are careful with language. And is, careful that what, with is that what drew you to, to law, the language of No, law? what drew me to law was I didn't know what to do after college. <laughs> uh, I had no interest in the law. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what to do. You know, if I look back, you, you couldn't... You couldn't be like Jack Kerouac. You couldn't just go on the road because the draft was there. Right. The ways to go on if you didn't want to be drafted was to go to graduate school, you know, if you're medical school. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you, you were not free. You were not free to just take off. Right. Um, which in a way was too bad. So the draft didn't end until, uh, I think, Nixon ended it. That until late. After the uh, after the Vietnam War, I think that's right in his second term before he was balanced. Right. But at any rate, that's an interesting part of our history. That, yes, it is. That a young man was not free to do what he wanted till he served two or three years right. in the military. Is I think Israel has a similar program. You. You have to do in Switzerland as well. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe so. You do a couple two, of years. And yeah, two years of service. Yes. And and then you then you're done, as it were. And I think it's just you know, in case there's another war, then everyone is more out. prepared. Yeah. Right. So if you were going to be an officer, that meant three years or more. Right. And if you were just a sailor, it could be two years, or or the army. Right, right. So how did you get get into storytelling? Because that's kind of a leap from from law to storytelling. There's a big there's a big gap there. I'm not sure. How do you feel that? <laughs> well, the gap started. So I'm a storyteller. What I say is my children listened to me into being a storyteller, which is true. But it did begin when I was 14 because I had a a brother who was. Uh, was four and his sister was five. Mm -hmm. So I would tell them stories. I would look at their hands and you might see a bump, so that would be a hill. You might see a line that could be a river. 
and they would be the hero and heroine. And I did that for several years, even in college, when I'd go back, I would tell them stories. So how much older were you than you So I was 10 years older. Okay. So I had a, a sister, two sisters who were two years older, two years younger, but I wouldn't tell stories to them. It was to these children. And something in me knew that they have this sense of wonder. And that started again when I got married. Two children, and they really did listen me into being a storyteller. It never occurred to me. Never. So what were you doing for a living at that point? So I was in the, in the Navy, that's three years, and I came back. And there was a decision whether to go into the Peace Corps, that would be another two or three years, mm. or to go into business with my parents, the Wyndham School in Boston. Mm. So the, the idea was that I would be teaching there and do administration, bring students in, and then eventually take it over. I got married, had the children, and something in me just wanted to burst out and create. It didn't occur to me that I could be a storyteller. It occurred to me that if you want to create, I could try to write novels. So there was a huge change when I left the school. And my wife had, uh, at that point, she had a nine-month-old baby, Ted. And somebody said, down in Marshfield, they have a they have a YWCA women's, right. very little, they have a barn, but it belongs to the Cambridge Y. So we went in an interview, and Adeline Dorn of the Cambridge Y said, uh, I was in my three-piece suit, yeah, yes, we think you could be the, the janitor, really? <laughs> the caretaker. <laughs> <laughs> but then she also said to Linda, we need a director. And I would be paid in, by a cottage there, no money. Linda would be paid for 20 hours a week. So it was very little money, but we brought the children up in a saltwater marsh, which is very beautiful. Right. And all of those years I was telling stories to my children. And it was those stories that brought me out into the world and I think many families have, you know, uh, have made those stories their own. You know, they've made phrases, hurry, hurry, little dragon, hurry, hurry, yeah. little dragon. Um, That's one of my favorites. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, I'm delighted. Delighted. Yeah. Many people have written or emailed saying that when a child has graduated, the whole family says, you did it, oh, you did it, oh, you did it, oh, you did it. <laughs> I think my wife's favourite is um, tulips. Oh, it's tulips? Yeah. Tulips, madame le farge. <laughs> she loves that. So, you're... why didn't you ever make that leap into folk and fairy tales? Uh, oh, let's see how... Alter the question a bit. So, okay. all of the stories to my children were like the little dragon, right. imaginary worlds, and in many of the stories they were the hero and heroine. So Elizabeth is Laura, my daughter Laura Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. 
Ted isn't in that story because he fell asleep early that night. Oh, Otherwise, he he'd be in the little track. <laughs> so I would read them folk tales and play with language. Pieta Pettit's policeman. This is a Richard Scarry story. And the next time I would say Pierre, the Paris policeman, and they would say, say it right. Say it right. Pieta Pettit's policeman. So I was learning that I liked rhythms. Pierre, and they liked rhythms. And then I was learning, you know, later on with Dragon, howdy, howdy, little dragon, that rhythms were fun and they were efficient and quick. We did it, oh, we did it, oh, we did it. And the rhythms said things that ordinary language doesn't say. Yeah. So they were teaching me in a way. It never occurred to me to tell a personal story. It just didn't occur to me. But at one point, so they're five or six or seven, they said, say when you were bad, Daddy. Say when you were bad. They wanted to know when I got in trouble. <laughs> so to Ted one night, because Laura was asleep, I told him about getting in trouble at grandmother's, and that was the story called Orange Cheeks. So that set me on a different path. I was in Africa, in South Africa once, State Department sent me because uh, the Union of Black Actors invited, they wanted a storyteller from America who did not tell folk tales oh. because they had heard that there was some kind of movement going on in America and it wasn't just folk tales. So I came, I remember one night we were in a township, it was cold, it was dark. I was driven probably by a white driver, but I stepped into this. It wasn't a building, because we were outside. So there's a concrete roof, and then there were columns, but it's unheated. And there were just adults standing in the dark, waiting for this American fellow to do something. So I told a mime story that was a bomb because I'm not a mime. <laughs> then I told a folk story, African folk story. That was not a good thing for an American to do. Yeah. Oh, so there's, then I told Orange Cheeks about a boy getting in trouble with his grandmother and they physically came closer. And I've realized there's something in personal stories. Most people have grandmothers. Right. Uh, so this little boy is in trouble with a grandmother, and this they understand, and they all spoke English in South Africa. So that sort of, what about telling about Pill Hill? Slowly but surely. So that was a totally different direction than just fantasy stories. Right. I, I, I could just jump one more. And then... In the town of Harvard, Massachusetts, there was a storytelling festival, and the town commissioned me to tell a story about the town. Was this Three Apples? Yeah, Three Apples. Okay. Three Apples. And the story became Edna Robinson. Uh, it's a story I really like. Her elbows bruised the air. Edna Robinson was long since dead, but the 
<clears throat> Mario Barber, who was the town plumber, grew up on the wrong side and as a boy said, I'm going to be a selectman someday. He became a selectman, a very important part of the town, and he helped me with that story. We gathered with the townspeople. They talked about different people, including Edna Robinson, who was the clerk in the general store. Always got to work. Nothing stopped Edna Robinson. So I would sit down with Mario and said, tell me about this woman. Oh, he said she was a beautiful woman. Two and a half miles, always got, she worked in the cage. This very interesting to me, beautiful woman. She was in the cage. And I wondered if that was a kind of cage in her life. She kept the books. And I made up a story based on many of the characters they told me. It's a love story, and I take uh, I take liberties. It's not supposed to be a factual story. But many of the town people come into it, and you have the sense at the end, this is a town. This is a place people take care of one another, know one another. A town in the 1920s, just when the cars are coming in. That was another new direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody comes and commissions you, and it's a challenge. Yeah. So that was your first commission job? That was the first commission, yes. And that was coupled with going to Nova Scotia and meeting, being under a whole month of blind woman, Maggie Thomas, and Charlie Robertson, who was in his early 90s and close to the end. And they were a team, not a married couple. Maggie Thomas Blind had come when she was young to be you know, a helper because his wife needed, Charlie's wife needed help. His wife had died and they were this team. Everybody would come to see Maggie and Charlie. They were presences. So I had a whole month sitting there, and out of this came the herring shed. I don't know if you know that story, but it's a... I, do, I, I need to listen to more of your stuff. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've cherry-picked a lot of stuff, but yeah. You, you really should listen to yeah. the herring shed, because that was the first adult story. Right. And it was filled with the rhythms <clears throat> of their work, of Maggie thumbing the gill, open the mouth, slip it on the rod in the herring shed. And it's a sad story about life in Nova Scotia in World War II. Uh -huh. uh, so two things were happening. That was happening, and then town of Harvard commissioned a story. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, you know, going back to some of these old, older recordings, um, the first one, the first time I heard you, I mean, I'd heard of you as a storyteller, but I'd never got to see you or anything. Um, and I was working at the library at the time, and I found this cassette tape called The Island. Oh, good. And I pulled it out, and I, I had a, this is, I had a, a 740DL, 240DL Volvo, <laughs> with the old clunky cassette tape in it. So, as I, was, as I was driving back home, I put the tape in, and there was no narration. It was all dialogue. Yes. And it absolutely blew my socks off. Because at first I was like, what's going on? And then, and then I rewound it. I was like, there's no narration. It's all dialogue. 
And was, it was, it was a, a, it's a stroke of genius. It's a, it was but, an experiment. But how, how, it, that's all it was, just an experiment. I wanted to see <laughs> what you could do. Three for the telebelly, two for the drum, ricky ticka ticka tock here we come. Yeah. <laughs> Brian R. <laughs> yes. I had, we were on vacation in Maine. I must have just recently read The Tempest. I wanted to try my own kind of magical. Oh. And so this was an attempt. And I also wanted to see what you could do without a narrator. I don't think I've ever done it again. But that's funny because you listen and you pick that up. That there's no narrator. Yeah, yeah. That was the first thing I noticed because it, it was just voices, character voices. It's just voices, yeah. And it actually, it helped me because there was a story that I couldn't, I couldn't find the voice of the story. Oh. And I was playing around with it and playing around with it, and I loved the story. Oh. And then, um, all of a sudden, the island came back to me, and I was like. Oh. Why don't I just do it in dialogue? <laughs> oh, good. And so, in, instead of it being a narrated story of what happened, it, it became a reminiscent of these two gentlemen. Um, oh. It's a captain. It's from aloft, and so it's the captain of the ship being visited by an old crew member, Jack, and they're sitting oh. down next to a fire, telling uh. telling a story to each other. Wonderful. Yeah. And that was. Totally inspired by oh, that's marvelous by by your your island because oh, I, I don't think I've ever thought of it on my own. Oh, wow. I'm not that smart. No, I'd like to hear your story. <laughs> so, um, do do you do you see you know, jumping back to the herring shed again? Um, did that open the door, and that, and also that the three apples gig did that open the door to other projects like the great orc forged in the stars and pouring the sun oh definitely definitely um the spider's web opened doors too the spider's web was a storytelling program wgbh oh. and occasionally they would have actors come in and read treasure island and occasionally, then they'd have storytellers. Brother Blue told a lot of stories there, and Marshall Dodge. But I told a lot of the children's stories, and they were broadcast nationally. So people in Montana who didn't uh, maybe have TV, anyway, they would hear these stories. So then I would get an invitation to go to Montana. Mm. And Time Magazine... Uh, covered a festival in Maine and they sent a reporter, Melvin Maddox, and he really loved the Herring Shed. So that gave me some national publicity. Nice. And the national publicity was helpful. The Boston Symphony Orchestra commissioned me about that to create a, a story. Pierre Gint, uh, to make it into the story so we can do it with the no 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 with the orchestra. Yeah. So there's several things: publicity, and then the spider's web. So occasionally uh, somebody'd be looking. You know, Dick Wheeler wanted a story. Then, then many years later, of course, NASA, the yeah. Forge of the Stars. So, do you think 
the WGBH, did the, is that how you got into meeting Fred Rogers? Yes, I think. I, I had not done the bubble for the spider's web. Okay. He, what he wanted was, he wanted the bubble story. I don't know how he heard about it. But he wanted to do a whole week. He wanted to make an opera around bubble. So I was to begin the week. I was to come in, brought in by the mailman, and say, yeah. you have a story about the bubble. I don't know if I even asked him. I didn't meet him in Nantucket. He picked me up, and he was charming, of course, in his program, but he was even char more charming, just, you know, relaxed yeah. in the car. I'll never forget, we're in Nantucket, so it's safe, but he stopped and picked somebody up who was bumming. He didn't know the person. That really impressed me. Yeah. Uh, and then we went to his house, and we talked over the bubble and how I'd do it, and then I went. Where do, oh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is where yeah. did all the programs. Yeah. yeah. So what was it like working with him? It was really delightful. It was fun to, to be you know, out there at his house. And then it was fun to be on the set. Yes, it was fun. You know, he was so accomplished. And he comes in every time in a sweater. But he did three takes that day. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, three takes. The button was, it wasn't quite right. But I know he'd done this hundreds of times, but he did it three more, three takes. <laughs> and one of the funny things was, it's the bubble, so he had these bubbles, and he'd blow the bubbles. You do it, Jay. Only one bubble came out, and it popped. Yeah. Well, and then he does it, and they all float out. I, I did watch that episode, because that's, the, I was, you know, before coming here, I did a lot of research. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, and I found the episode, and it was on YouTube, so I watched it. Okay. And you're trying to blow these bubbles, and there's nothing coming did out. Did you notice? I did notice. I was like, because it's, it's kind of a fuzzy picture, but I'm like, I don't think there are any bubbles coming out. And then Fred takes it, and there's like <laughs> hundreds of them, and then he gives it back to you, and... <laughs> Like you say, the one bubble pop, you know, that's it. I don't know if anybody else noticed. <laughs> I certainly noticed. <laughs> that's really cool. No, I was, I was, I was very impressed and, and, and thrilled that you got to, to meet him. To meet him, he was... Because uh, uh, Fred Rogers, he, he wasn't... That show never made it to the UK. And so I didn't oh, know about it oh, until really? I came over here and had kids of my own. Oh, my God. And then we started watching, and I thought, this, this guy is very, very subtle, but it's... Very, very powerful the messages that he he gets across. Some yeah. of it I thought was a bit weird, you know, the puppets and the marionette things and all that. But but it really worked. It did. Yeah. It did. It really did. Yeah, he he was he was a marvel. Yeah, he was. Sadly missed. Greatly missed. He was greatly missed. Would have been fun. So Tim here at the house has uh -huh. shown it to his grandchildren and. Fred is saying, oh, do you like that? And these two, yes, they're talking right back to him the way kids always did. Yeah, that's so, Yes, he's a, a gentle soul, a good part of the, of the culture. Yeah. When did you discover that storytelling, what, what kind of clicked for you that storytelling was going to be your full-time, one and only gig? I was the caretaker at the YWCA. Mm -hmm. I was telling stories to my children and then occasionally telling them around Marshfield at the Clift Rogers Library. It's a very small library. And then 
I read something about no theater, N-O-H, the no theater in okay. Japan. And I read that the, some of these no people would get up early in the morning and they would work their bodies. And I was doing a long story then, and I, I would do that. I would get up early morning and do the story and try to explore gesture, sound, the story. So suddenly try to take it more seriously. So seven years is going on. That my children, occasional library, occasional Cub Scout group. And then thinking about the no theater, because I didn't know storytellers. And then there was a great break. Leo Dower, I think it's D-A-W-E-R. Leo Dower was the principal of the Governor Winslow School. So I'd gone there to tell stories, you know, for fun. They might give me $10, usually nothing. Mm-hmm. I once told this huge group, because I was fearless then, I didn't know enough to, to say no. I told a story, and I can't imagine it was very good, and brought my son, he was, he was the monkey with the cup. Ah. So he was a character. I never did that before. So Leo Dower knew me, and I was Sick one day, the radio was on, and the announcer was saying something like, get up and do something. So I, I got up and I called Leo Dower and said, Mr. Dower, J. O'Callaghan, I'm now a professional storyteller. He said, what does that mean? It means you pay me. <laughs> and he said, come on down. Now that was a great gift. He was one of those people that was open to life. He didn't say, well, I'm busy, or let's make an appointment. He said, come on down. Got in the car and tried to think, of what am I going to tell him? So kind. I said, I will come and tell four stories, two classes, but I'll tell the story. Then the kids can ask how I put it together. I'll do four of them and you will pay me $25 for each. This was a fortune to me. Yeah. He said, done. And what, what year was this? Wow, we... Or shouldn't I ask? <laughs> no, that's a good question. So let's just see. Uh, so out of the Navy in uh, 65, seven years would bring us to 72 about. Okay. Uh, 65. So it was in the early 70s because by 76, raspberries, I was telling it all over the place. And 76, I think, is in Began and Carter. And I thought they should have me to tell raspberries because it's a celebration yeah. of coming together. It's a great fantasy. Of course, I'm not called by the president to tell yeah. raspberries. But by 76, I had stepped out and was beginning to, to go mostly to schools for, for several years. Uh-huh. And that was the same format, you tell stories and then tell the kids how you formulated the stories? And... <laughs> yes, and that would have been good to do that, but to 
pay the bills, what I would do is just tell to a large group, you know, two, 200 kids, 300 kids, and then tell to a second group of, oh, you know, four to, four to six or mm-hmm. seven to eight. So a lot of it was then uh, performing as opposed to telling and then getting questions which I did for several years. I remember being in Brookline, telling a story, probably seventh and eighth grade, it's called The Magician. It's a very strange story about a, a boy turning into an eagle. There's a dark character called The Magician. And I said to those kids afterwards, uh, I said, there's a silence, there's a silence, and when that happens, something is really going on, and the, the silence was there. You kids were there. I remember how strong it was, and I remember going the same thing, Brookline High, high school kids. I just knew nothing. I, I didn't know you, you should be very wary of high school kids. I just knew these stories are good, and these kids, yeah. just 25 or 50 of us, were together. It was exploring. It was very exciting. Yeah. I knew nothing about the form. First time it happened to me, it was, did I do all right? What's going on? And then I realized that the silence was them being in the story. Yes, yes. It was very powerful and I wanted in those years, I wanted, what I really wanted was a big car or truck so that when it was done I would be in the back making notes and learning, you know, did this character work? Why why did this story flag at this point? I wanted to learn, learn, learn from the kids. For, for quite a while in Brooklyn, I would tell four stories a day. Then I would, for Asbury's, have the teachers make drawings, and I would study those drawings. You know, the, this hat fascinates them. Oh, the, this Herman the Worman. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to have another character in Herman the Worman. The character had to go because the character didn't belong there. Really? And I would learn a lot from their drawings. But this was a period of learning, mm. exciting, exciting time, several years. It's interesting that you would use the pictures to to pull that information. Yes, they, they were teaching me a lot, yeah. uh, those kids and those drawings. The Brookline years were very helpful years to me. So... You talk about the the kids were teaching you. When when was the first time you realized that there were other storytellers out there doing not the same work that you were doing, but doing similar work to you? I'd heard about Marshall Dodge, who told the Downey stories. And then at one point I met Brother Blue Mm -hmm. when I was doing... an attempt at a historical story called Magellan. And Harvard had a day of different people approaching history differently. Mm-hmm. Brought me in, I met Brother Blue. And I think it was after that. I think I'd been telling maybe five, six, seven years before I heard about the National Storytelling Festival. Oh, wow. In Jonesboro, Tennessee. And got an invitation long ago 
went there and met Connie Reagan Blake, Barbara Freeman, and Blue went one year. I remember walking down the street with Blue and then realizing there is this David Holt, this whole group of people doing this. Yeah. And I had no idea that different people, Jackie Torrance. Right. Jackie Torrance, I met Jackie. I had no idea she was doing this and uh, and had such, you know, power. Yeah. What was your first impression of Brother Blue? Uh, well, my first impression was... Uh, <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think immediately I, I loved the way that he, he dressed. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was really his, his dramatic kindness. So I told this story, Magellan, in, just in a classroom. So. I suppose there were college students and adults there, a small group. So I finished it, and Brother Blue was Brother Blue. Brother Blue came up, the master, the master, this is the master, everybody, everybody. <laughs> you know, nobody ever did that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was completely dramatic, completely, ah, you're the sea, you're the, you're the sea, he's the man of the sea, every man of the sea. <laughs> Yeah, Brother Blue was a very, uh, I mean, I, I loved the man, uh, very extravagant in his, his personality was extravagant. It was, was very, it was full, overflowing. And, wonderful word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Somebody once said that he was the John Coltrane of storytelling, and I think there's an element of truth there. Yes, I always felt he was, he was an angel yeah. in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> it may have been. <laughs> we, always, we always talk about Ruth. Like he's the kite and Ruth is holding onto the string so yeah. he can't get too, can't fly off somewhere. She did it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And Jackie Torrance, who, who was this, was there a storyteller that had a big influence on you? Uh, certainly Jackie and Blue, not, not in the way I told stories, uh, but I think their presence, you know, Blue was not just hurry, hurry little dragon, but he was that way all the time. Yeah. Uh, and with his arms, and with his face, and with his daring. Um, and Jackie with her presence was very important to me. Uh, Blue with his great kindness. And that, you know, extravagant, wild openness to, to the way you can be. Use your body, use your voice. Yeah. Uh, and that's interesting because, you know, in, well, in the UK, you tell folk tales. Yeah. And there's a kind of uh, rule that you, you really should tell folk tales. <laughs> and Blue was not confined by, by any rule. Right. right. I, don't, I don't think there was a rule of folk tales. Maybe. Um, I think it's just the way that the the British are, you know, why would anybody want to hear about my life? You know, I think it's just that British reserve, possibly. Um, it's the same in Scotland, though, and actually yeah. Ireland. Uh, I mean, I don't know of any English, Scottish or Irish storytellers who are out there telling stories of their life or commission stories. Yeah. They tell folk tales, right. which is very powerful. But I don't feel a, a kind of an, an invitation, you know, where 
we're all in this together. So I may be right. wrong, but it. Uh, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I, I feel that there's, there's this. Yeah, I, I feel a bit differently about that. Having you know. Done both sides of the Atlantic, as it were. Um, yes, yes. I feel that the storytelling people in in the UK are very much all part of a a collective. I don't think it's. I think it's different over here. Um, but I think that, I don't know, that the popular culture over here seems to be drawn more towards the personal narrative, whereas I think in, in, in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, um, people aren't drawn so much to the personal narrative, they're drawn to the old folk tales. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, I've been told that, you know, if you want to be a very successful storyteller, you should add some personal stories, at least over here. In the states, I need to do more personal stories. But I, I think you know, there's that Britishness, I guess, in me. It's like nobody wants to hear my stuff. And if I did, I'd never work in a school again. <laughs> yes. Well, to, to me, it's a, an art form. So you explore, and you can explore through, obviously, through folk tales. Right. But you can explore. You don't need to leave it to a playwright to. You don't need to leave it to Eugene O'Neill to explore life with this form. That's the way I feel. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, well, you're obviously wide open to it. Um, Which story um, that, that you tell sticks with you most? Which story resonates with you most? Is, is there one that does that for you? Yes, but they, but it really does change. Uh, so the story that I'm working for is, is with is the most important at the moment. Right. You know, I love the herring shit. I love I love the island. I've done that in thirty years, but it's inside me. Three for the telebere. Love to do that. So I'm working on one. I don't know if you know uh, Muddy River Playhouse. It's a story about uh, amateur theater where everything goes wrong, opening night. And it's based on my dad being an amateur actor and, and me being on stage. But underneath that, it's a story of, uh, of a father and son finally being able to talk about life briefly. So that's the story that I'm working on. I've done it many times. I'll be doing it at the small theater in New Hampshire, the Pontine Theater, early November. And I'll, I'll preface it with some short Pill Hill stories. That, so right now, that's fun because I'm exploring more Pill Hill. How do the Pill Hill stories come to an end? That's... What I'm working on, not with this story, but another story, that finally Pill Hill comes to an end, and you leave Pill Hill, and you leave the house. So there's one story that I've been working on, and you lead up to that. It's my sister's wedding, and she's married, and the morning turns out to be the biggest storm of the 20th century. Can there be a wedding? 
on Pill Hill. <laughs> anyway, that that I'm very drawn to. It's a story that has I haven't been able to bring alive for 20 years. The story of her wedding and the story of Pill Hill. Culmination. How do you feel about bringing that cycle to a close? That's got to be fairly emotional, hasn't it? Yeah, maybe that's why it's eluded me. But at my time of life, I'd love to be able to do it. Because Peel Hill had you know, many dramas and some really sad dramas. But there was something to celebrate, and that's why the story should be done. Right. Celebrate my sister, celebrate my parents, celebrate that great house, still a great house. But those times for my parents, for me and my sisters in college, we had these huge parties. People came from colleges all over. They gathered and music and dance and argument and, uh, and celebration. You know, there was no meanness there. There was something that, that needs to be finished out there. And I'm closer than I've ever been. So that's a long answer, but it is what, what I'm working on. Yeah. Have you been back to that house recently? Many times. Yeah. Is Many it, times. Is it still in the family or? No, it isn't. My parents sold it and in time another couple bought it who we got to know well. So my parents bought it for something like $5,000 and then, then these people bought it for three quarters of a million dollars. That's a good investment. <laughs> oh man, if only they had held on to it. Yeah. Three quarters of a million dollars and and the fellow um, was a kind of in development or something. So he had, he had the money. He's a wonderful guy who just died recently. He's a young man. Got cancer. But the house they had the money to really restore things. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful house now. Yeah. What's the most rewarding work you've done, do you think, for you personally? Um, well, it really is a mixture. I've loved the performing, but the performing is coming to an end. And it's the workshops I continue to be very alive, very simple. I just have found that everyone I've met is creative and they're filled with stories. They can be one-minute stories because they're filled with memories. Right. And that's it's very simple. That's what I do in the workshops, just drawing those out. And that's, you get a lot of satisfaction from that. Yes, I get I get a lot of satisfaction from that. I am working on a, a novel uh, called Mage, and the most recent reading has been uh, rewarding because at least those chapters are really really good. They're alive. I've never felt I could write for print. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I'm drawn to sound, partially because of my mother, 
what are you reading? <laughs> and that becomes, you know, three for the telepathy, playing with sound. A lot of this is just playing with sound and character. Yeah. I'm drawn to character. Yeah, that's very obvious in your work. Jackson and Brian are... Oh, I don't know if you remember, but Brian Hart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your characters are very strong. They're, they're... Yeah, well, characters is what really draws me. Is there a storyteller that either you've met or haven't met, whether they're alive or if they've passed, that you would love to sit down and swap stories with? Oh, there are many, many. Uh, I always loved the way Ed Stivender played with the moment. I'm working a lot now with Diane Edgecombe. We should interview Diane. I'm going to. Oh, good. I haven't asked her yet, but I, I plan on doing it. Yes, because she has many worlds. One is the world of myth. Right. Uh, and one is the world of, you know, international pollock of the Kurdish people. Yeah. Uh, this is taking storytelling in a huge step forward. Uh, but we work together right here so that I can hear these myths. And then, then we're back in, you know, in Turkey, meeting Kurds. Uh, the, the way she explores many areas. I love that. Just before you came, I was working with Beth Horner okay. on Skype. Beth is one. And the story, she's down in Jonesville now, tell her in residence. So at 2 o'clock today, she's telling a story about her father. It's marvelous. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful work. The dialogue and the character. Uh, and she could only have done that story after really working for years. And so she is working with a family story, but it's the present. And that's, that's quite something to work in the present, your family right now. That's something I still want to do, more stories about my children. And then these little boys. Yeah, your grandkids. Their, their language. I'll tell you one teeny story. So, <clears throat> somehow a discussion, my daughter said, I don't believe in God. And Patrick, who was six at the time, said, I do. And Connor, who was six at the time, says, I am God. There we have it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Kids come out with... Uh... Pretty amazing stuff sometimes. They do. That's why it's wonderful to have these kids around. Yeah. It's true. It's true. What's your favorite breakfast? Oh, and your a, favorite place to eat it? That's a good question. My favorite breakfast would be Egg Benedict. Mm-hmm. But no one I've found makes the hollandaise the way Mother did. So I'm pretty much st still in search. <laughs> there, There is a place called The Mug. It's a very simple place. My wife doesn't like it because it's dark, but it's simple. There's no music. They haven't discovered music. 
And I love that, you sit and there are people talking and it's quiet. And you could have breakfast, you know, you don't have this intrusive music. So I love that about it. When I was in Ireland, I loved breakfast there. When I was Israel and Palestine, the breakfast was so different yeah. in China. Tofu, vats of tofu, it didn't look, wasn't particularly appealing. <laughs> Vats. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's I, as a vegetarian, I eat, I eat a fair amount of tofu, but you know, looking at it and working with it is, you know, it's, it's pretty weird stuff. That's for sure. So, how many, you've travelled a, a lot of different places. What What's your favourite country that you've been to, discounting America? There are several. Niger. I was fascinated with Niger. Where's that? Niger is uh, sub-Saharan and close to Nigeria. It's very poor. I remember being in the desert, which was not just sand, it was some growth. I love the drama of Niger. I went to visit a college classmate who was ambassador there. He had a driver drive me up country to Iro. And one of the dramas was I said to stop, can we just get out and feel the heat? And out of nowhere came a man. And the driver interpreted it, he's saying that he comes from a poor country. He comes from a poor country. How can anything be poorer than this? And his face was like the face of uh, Native American, American Indians, you know, all the, all the sun has carved the face. So there was this elemental feel in Niger. And there was a storyteller, Coco Co. That's why I was up country to, to see Coco Co. And I was uh, in the marketplace. African came over and spoke in. Coco wants to talk to you. Coco is in this suit. Everybody else is in boo-boos. He's in a suit. You can you could come tonight. You can come tonight to hear me. $75. $75 is a fortune. This is early in story time. I don't, I don't have any money. I agree. So that night we go. We're in a boat. We're passing the island of the kings. Oh, they're chanting because the king has died. Coco goes island, it's dark, no electricity. You're walking by these very simple, they're like huts. I'm the only white person. They're all looking, and they're all following me. So behind me, there's 20, 30, 40 people. So the American is coming to, to see Coco Co. Go into Coco Co's. There are these mud walls. The garden is where he's going to 
saying, tell his story. Heads are appearing over that Coco Co because he's singing the song. He's a griot, but we say griots and storytellers. He's a storyteller singer. Coco Co Iro, he's singing. Coco Co Iro, Coco Co Paris. It's a story about him, Coco Co, how he's revered in Montreal, Quebec, and Paris. It's all a story about Coco Co. Trying to think of what is next. But that was my introduction to African storytelling. And Coco Co, the interpreter, says he works in the gardens. He's very famous. And he makes up his songs and his stories while he's working. So this is an introduction of a brand new American storyteller to, to a griot who sings his stories, more like Bob Dylan. He sings his stories about himself. And they're on the radio there. And they are a way of saying, you're somebody, you're somebody. You, you're like Coco Co. You, uh, in a way, doing a wonderful job. I don't know if he's still alive. That was years ago. I should, should look him up. But moments like that were very, very new and very special. It was like meeting Jackie Torrance. You know, this fellow's doing it. He's yeah. doing it in his way. You know, all of them, China was special. Chile was very special. Yeah. Chile was special not for storytelling, but for the way people lived, the simplicity. It's a story I told once at the festival. It didn't didn't work. It was very simple. It was about being in a hill in Chile, and I'm I'm with a woman, a Chilean woman who was tough, ordinary, no education, but she totally confident. We've been left up. Somebody's supposed to meet us, and we see this girl, young woman, coming up the hill. There's nothing. Where is she coming from? She gets close to us. Her face is rough. She doesn't speak English. She speaks Spanish, I guess. She says to the woman, she's, I lived down there. I look and you can almost see the outline of a building. They came and they bulldozed it. They drove my family off. I'm not leaving. She's talking about the Japanese and this is the ruler. Ruler means it's very poor. They're growing eucalyptus. They suck up the water. I'm not leaving. And she goes off. Mm. This young woman, what? She's kind of rebelling. She's on her own. What's going to become of her? So that's not storytelling, but I wonder about her story. Right. And I wonder about foreign companies coming into Chile. Know nothing about it. And that image, so my work is largely images. 
so there was the image of where a house used to be. Yeah. That's like the English moving up into Scotland and burning people out of their homes. Really? Yeah. Yes. Because they wanted the land for sheep. They could make more money than with sheep than they could with tenants. So they drove a lot of the tenants off the land. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's the present? Oh, no, no, this is... No, that's so long, yeah, this yeah, was long this is, ago. Yeah. It's just out of Brexit. Not yeah. quite living history, but almost. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I've never thought about uh, telling stories about some of those travels. That would, that would be fun, actually. Yeah, I bet. Do a world story, uh, performance of a world different stories from different countries as you travel around the world. Yes, that, that would be fun. Yeah, I'd like to do that. So I know you're busy, and I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I have one, one more question for you. Good. Um, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to become a storyteller, a young person? <coughs> I told you I was just listening to Beth Horner, wonderful storyteller. But her story ends with telling people, uh, do the dream, do the dream. It's a story about her father being five years old and falling in love with a cow. So he wants to be a farmer at five and his family says, we're engineers, you're going to college, nonsense. He's alive right now, he's 96. And he's still got a herd. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would tell him, uh, if you're drawn to this, then, then trust that, trust that, that this is, this is a wonderful form, it's a form of language and a form of sound, the power of sound and the presence of you and whoever you're telling to, it's a, it's a story of presence. It's a story that is so fluid, fluid with language, with silence, with rhythm, with images. Um, and it, it, it's so wide. So you can, you can tell the Odyssey. You can tell your own story. You can tell folktales from so many countries. So what draws you? But trust that if you if you're drawn to this, you'll you'll find your way, and you, it may bring you around the world. It may just bring you to a classroom. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because the, the listeners are going to they're going to imagine as you tell, and you and the listeners are going to enter into the world of the story. I discovered that with my children that when I would tell them a story, usually making it up, I suddenly was not just the father, just the authority. We were wandering together in that world. And this is a world of using images. And it says outside of it that we can imagine our way, you know, to peace. We can imagine our way to 
more kindness or graciousness in life. This, this imagination we have is so powerful, this gift we have as human beings. And we certainly need reason to find our way, but we also need imagination. Yeah. I think without imagination we can give up. You know, it's impossible to find peace here. It's impossible to find peace there. But it's also possible to imagine our way. Thanks, Jay. Good. Really appreciate it. A huge thanks to Jay and his wife, Linda, for letting me spend so much time with Jay. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and learned a little more than you might have known about this great man. Thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music. I'm drumming on the track. Ben is a fine songwriter. Look his work up. Creating this podcast is very much a labour of love and takes a large amount of time and no small resource to make and host. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, www.simonbrooksstoryteller.com or on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. There's no E in Brooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation, if you like a particular episode, will help get more shows out there, help me become more proficient, and will allow me to travel further afield to interview these incredible voices. If you can, leave a review on Stitcher or wherever else you've found this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump on the interwebs and find out more about my guests. Follow them and me if you like. All my guests are amazing storytellers. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers, when the guest will be... (laughs) Until next time. Thank you.